If you want to grab hold then of your service sheets, we're going to now turn to the Bible passage for this evening that's going to inform uh, the sermon. It's on the back of your service sheet, so um, have, a, have a look at that. Uh, this um, passage that we're looking at this evening is, is basically the next one on from last week. Um, we're not very innovative that way as a church, but we just we go through sections of the Bible. And, uh, and so we come now to uh, the next section, uh, the message uh, that Jesus gives to a local church many hundreds of years ago, but a church by the name of Pergamum. So we'll think about that in a few moments. Let's look together at Revelation uh, chapter 2. We're going to start together reading at verse 12. This is God's word. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. We'll leave the reading of God's word there for a moment. A couple of weeks ago, uh, we saw a very similar message written to a church uh, in a city called Ephesus. And that city uh, was, the, was the principal city in that part of the world at that particular time. And now we're coming to the third sort of message in the series to these seven churches in a particular part of the world known then as Asia Minor, now known to us as modern-day Turkey, where Jesus, the risen, resurrected Lord Jesus, appears in a vision to the Apostle John and then gives him the instruction to write down what he sees and then pass it to the churches. And so uh, we saw that a couple of weeks ago with Ephesus, and then last week to the church at Smyrna, another city around the corner, and this week to this church called Pergamum. It used to be that Pergamum itself was the principal city in the whole area. Now, at the time of writing, is now Ephesus. But still, the city of Pergamum that we're going to look at throughout this sermon was a really important city. Not because it was economically strong and, and influential, you know, like London and, and sort of Canary Wharf and all the financial district, not for that reason, but the city of Pergamum was influential because of its religion. It was a city that was filled with religion. It was a real mixed bag. Even many, many centuries before the Bible times, and we're going back a long time, the history of, of Pergamum was, was filled with lots and lots of pagan worship. In fact, it was said that if you went to the city of Pergamum at the time of the Bible's writing, you would see lots and lots of pagan temples, 
lots and lots of sacrificial sites littered around the city, up on the hills. Everywhere you went, religious stuff was happening. And more recently, when the Roman Empire swept into Asia Minor, they only added to that sense of religious spirituality that was going on at the church. The first temple uh, to Rome was constructed in 133 BC, and that shortly followed on by a second temple and a third temple, all to various Roman emperors. So the city was a real mixed bag, a real melting pot of various religions. It was the center of the emperor cult, where someone would come and confess their allegiance to the emperor of Rome in some sort of uh, religious ceremonies as a mark of their patriotism, mixed in with spirituality and giving sacrifices and all that kind of thing. You just go to that city, and the one thing you experience is that sense, that heavy air of religious activity, that industry. I, I, I've never visited Pergamum. I certainly haven't visited it uh, 2,000 years ago. Um, but the closest thing I think I've personally come to uh, is a place in, in India. I, I visited, I was in India for two months, uh, several years ago, many years ago. Uh, and I went to this, this city, uh, which is actually the place of the third holiest site in, um, in India, in, in, in um, uh, Hinduism. There was a uh, Hindu temple there with a lot of uh, worship and activity going on. In fact, the city itself, this is in North India, by the way, um, is the place where every 12 years they have this huge uh, festival called the Kumela. It's estimated that 120 million people flocked into the city in India in 2013, which is the last time this festival uh, came along. 120 million people. I mean, that is just almost impossible for me to imagine that number of people. But they were all there so they could come and bathe in the, in the uh, sacrificial um, sort of system and they could come and bathe in the, the river they thought was a way of cleansing their sins. And so once every 12 years, they would, they would all flock to this city. And, and, and just the, the, the noise and the clamor and the color uh, of all this religious activity going on. And so I suspect that something like that was happening in Pergamum that we're reading about today. If you look down at verse 13 of our text, um, it's pretty clear where Jesus stands on such a city as that. Jesus actually uh, calls Pergamum the place where Satan's throne is. Later he says in verse 14, it is where, sorry, at the end of verse 13, it's the place where Satan dwells. It seems pretty clear from, from Jesus' perspective that all this, this religious clamor the spirituality, this pagan spirituality that was going on in this city had its root somewhere along the line in Satan's kingdom, Satan's activities. Anyway, let's think about the church because it's in that context that this little church who receives this message is located. Um, uh, historians tell us that the church of Pergamon, like most of these churches in, in, in the city, in the, in Asia Minor, was a very small little church. A very small minority of the city were Christians. Most likely they were viewed with suspicion. And as such, the little church, we don't know, maybe 50 or 100 people attended for worship. In the background of all this pagan religion, upon that church there was immense pressure. Immense pressure. 
We'll see why in a few moments. Our series, uh, by the way, is called Status Update. And the reason is that it seems to be that Jesus, in looking at these seven churches, is giving a status update for each church. Some good, some bad. And so let's look at what Jesus considers the status of this particular church to be. He says in verse 13, I know where you dwell. He says, you hold fast to my name. You did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. You hold fast to my name. You have been faithful. Even this fellow by the name of Antipas, we don't know anything more about him other than what's written here, gave his life because he was faithful to Jesus. He maintained his faith in Christ. He would not, you know, deny Jesus. And as such, he lost his life. It says that he was killed among you. We don't know if that was actually in the church at the time when he was killed or maybe just in a public uh, realm in the city. But anyway, the church are under immense pressure. We saw last week a similar situation in the church to Smyrna. Uh, another church was going to face difficulties and trials and persecutions and Jesus said to them, be faithful unto death. Well, it seems like the church in Pergamum is the next step along. This is a reality for some of the believers in Pergamum. They are, by the way, a group, uh, the church is a group of believers who have heard the gospel of Jesus. They've heard that he is the crucified saviour, that he died, that he was raised to life on the third day and ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And, and that message they received, they were convinced that it was true, they were convicted by it, they responded by faith, in Christ and repentance for their sins and as such they were formed into this this church this little group of believers they knew the Christian message and they faithfully maintained their witness to Christ despite the fact that they were in the minority despite the mockery despite the immense pressure that they had from the religious majority in the city of, of Pergamum but look down at verse 14 it begins with this word but which, which, which demonstrates to us that although they've been faithful, although there's good things about the church, they, they, they've hold, held fast. There is something that Jesus has detected that he is not pleased with. But, he says in verse 14, I have a few things against you. Jesus identifies this lethal flaw within the church. He says, some of you in the church hold to the teaching of Balaam or Balaam, whatever way you want to pronounce it, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. All is not well in the church. We've got this bizarre behavior going on. There's some funny teaching happening. And these, these weird names that, that uh, sort of pop up. Um, by the way, uh, we're going to have to take a few moments to sort of dive into the Old Testament because that is where uh, we learn of who these names are, this Balaam and Balak. And once we understand that, we can understand what Jesus is saying here and then understand what he is saying to us. Okay? So we have to take a step back before we can take a step forward. If you go back to the beginning, towards the beginning of the Bible, and you look at uh, the book of Numbers in chapter 22, 23 to 25, uh, you will see um, that the people of Israel, under the leadership of Moses, they've come out of Egypt. Uh, they have been delivered by the power of God and they are on their way to the, the promised land to take possession of the promised land. 
And it takes them 40 years to do that. And so on their way, on their, their wilderness wanderings, as it's known as, they take on these two tribal kings. And they defeat these tribal kings, the Israelites. And it's amazing. And God delivers them again, as he keeps on doing. And so a third tribal king, this king by the name of Balak, see that in verse 14, um, looks on at the Israelites, and he, he's, he's worried, he's afraid. He knows that him and his people, the Moabites, can't defeat Israel. He's seen what they've done to these other two tribal kings. And so he summons this pagan prophet, this spiritualist kind of guy called Balaam to, to, to bring a curse on Israel. He knows he can't defeat them by might, but what he wants to do is, is, is stir up the spirit world and put a curse on Israel. And as, as the story goes on, uh, even though this, this prophet, this spiritualist guy called Balaam, uh, even though he's a pagan, he's not a believer in, in, in God, um, the God of Israel, he is unable to pronounce a curse on Israel. He's still under the authority of God. He, he, he's a pagan. He doesn't believe uh, in the God of Israel, and yet he can't deny him effectively. So he can't curse Israel. The best he can manage, as we see as the, the, the story goes on, is to advise the women of Moab to entice the men of Israel to go and sleep with them and to engage them in, 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 in pagan worship. The best you can do, you can't put a curse on them, you can't defeat them, but you can go to bed with them. And uh, that way, you know, scramble their minds, distract them, and then you can maybe come and attack later. That's the best we can do. And so that's exactly what happens. And so the women of Moab went to the men of Israel and engaged them in that way and engaged them in pagan worship. And you can read the rest of the story after that. So that is the background to what's going on in this letter right here, okay? Got me? Kind of. Fast forward then to Pergamum, to the days of Revelation chapter 2, many, many centuries later. And we see the exact same thing happening to the church. Okay, it's a different part of the world, different human faces, but the same problem is facing the church in Pergamum that Jesus has identified. It seems to be, according to Jesus, that there are false teachings going around the church where believers are being enticed away from their first love, which is Jesus, away from their devotion and their faithfulness to him and his message. They're being enticed from that to engage in pagan beliefs and pagan practices. And likely the food sacrificed to idols and the sexual immorality, uh, not just random sins, if you like, they are tied to pagan religion, pagan worship. So in verse 14, Jesus says, you know, there are some of you in the church who hold to this false teaching. And also in verse 15, there are also some of you who hold to the te te teaching of the Nicolaitans, another random name. We came across them a couple of weeks ago. It seems to be this group called the Nicolaitans are the sort of contemporary application, the ones who are giving this false teaching to the church. Anyway, whatever they're saying, they are making some ground within the church in Pergamum. And just to be really, really clear, we're not talking here that the church is denying Jesus straight away. They're not about to collapse. But what we are talking about is that they are gradually absorbing values and ideas 
from the prevailing culture, the religious identity of the city as a whole, and they're absorbing that into the church, bit by bit. You know, the false teachers were saying to the church, you know, you can have your Christianity, and you can also have a bit of pagan religion mixed in. You can have your cake and you can eat it. You can enjoy some of these pleasures as well as keep your faith in Jesus. That's what these false teachers were saying to the church. Antipas held firm to the word. And yet, according to Jesus, some are denying the word by their actions. And so the status update for this church is urgent. To use computer language, there has been a security breach in the firewall of the church. And right now, they are to take urgent action to prevent a system breakdown. You know, we can, we can look on uh, today, right here in Belfast in the 21st century, we can, we can look on at this church in Pergamum and look at the compromises they have made and we can ask ourselves, how could they be so stupid? I mean, this stuff is pretty obvious. Food sacrifice to idols and sexual immorality. I mean, isn't that just, isn't that just so obvious? I mean, how could they be so stupid in the world of medicine, we, we call that barn door. You, you can't miss a barn door. It's so big and so obvious. How can you miss sins like that, we might say, to the church? We would never allow that kind of thing here in Foundation Church, of course. That's what we think. But you see, if, if this is kind of our attitude when we come to uh, this subject here at Pergamum, this is just to misunderstand the subtlety of what's going on in the church at Pergamum, and therefore the subtlety facing us today as the church. The chances are, as much as we hate to admit this, if you or I were a member of that church in Pergamum, we may make similar compromises without realizing it. Like the church in Pergamum, we today here, as Bible-believing, Christ-honoring Christians, are in the minority. We may not realize it. We used to be in the minority several generations, the majority several generations ago. But now we're in a time and an age where increased pressure is being put upon the church by the wider world. This prevailing culture. We, we were looking at this last week. We talked about the Christian or the biblical worldview and how that's being attacked and undermined by the non-Christian, the secular majority worldview of our own Western culture. You can listen online if you want to catch up. Let me give you a, a bit of an illustration to it, the kind of thing I'm, I'm talking about. I, I, I was um, at a place called Island Hill a couple of days ago. Um, it's just outside Cumber. It's not, it's not really particularly fancy. You can just drive down there. A lot of people take their dogs for a walk and just hang out and get some, get some fresh air. Uh, you can look over Strangford Lock. And I, I was sat there and I was just sort of reading a book and watching the world go by and just enjoying the creation, that kind of thing. And I noticed that there were, uh, say, four or five wooden, old wooden posts stuck out of, the, out of the water. And I noticed them because there was a seagull on every single one. And I thought, that would be pretty cool. If you were a good photographer and you had a good camera, that would be an awesome picture. Anyway, I'm not, and I didn't, so it wasn't. But anyway, there were five of these seagulls lined up. Anyway, I got back to my book. 
you know, half an hour later, sort of looked up and uh, just thought, oh, I wonder if those birds are still there, you know. Of course, they weren't there. In fact, nothing was there. It was just water. And uh, I thought to myself, okay, fine. I see what's happened. Uh, the tide has obviously, in the, even in the short time I was there, the tide has come up. Uh, most likely it's just covered all the wood. No evidence of it anymore. There was no crashing waves. There was no wind that day. There was no, not even a ripple on the surface of the water. It just very, very slowly came up and engulfed this entire scene. And so that's the kind of thing I'm talking about that was facing the church in Pergamum and likewise facing us today. The, the prevailing culture, the, the secular worldview, the non-Christian worldview of the world that we live in. It's just making these gentle, smooth inroads into our society. Bit by bit, just covering what was left. And the church is no exception. If we're not careful, we ourselves today in Foundation Church and we the church at large in general will be, begin, if we haven't already, to embrace assumptions and values that the, the church has traditionally and historically taught. There'll be no great waves. There'll be no ripples, but just little concessions, little changes, little compromises as we go as a church. And suddenly, in inverted commas, suddenly the church will awake and we will realize that the whole thing has been swamped. We'll suddenly awake and realize that there are huge ethical and theological and social issues that have come and caught us by quote-unquote surprise. In reality, it's not a surprise at all. But just like the church in Pergamum, bit by bit, the pagan, you know, the sort of non-believing worldview has taken over and then just caused untold damage in the church. Let me just be clear here as well, just in case you're wondering. I'm not talking about some sort of arbitrary religious rules that we have enacted over the past or religious behavior. We're talking here about God's revelation of himself to us, to his church, to his people, through his authoritative word in the scriptures. We saw this back on week one of our series in, in Revelation where we looked at chapter one. We, we realized that God not only exists, but almost slightly more amazingly, he speaks. And so what we're dealing with here is not just a sort of church tradition and good ways to live. We're dealing here with something that God who is there, who speaks, who made, makes his will clear through his Son, through the Spirit, through the Word. We're dealing with that versus the modern mindset, the modern culture that thinks of life without God, without his revealed Word. The non-spiritual version that this life is all there is and there is no higher power and life is just what you make it and having the best go you can and you know, working hard and leaving money to the next generation if, if you want. And so the moment that we let that slip, the moment that we forget that what we're doing here every Sunday is listening to God's word through the Bible is the moment that we come under the same problem that we see here in Pergamon. The water of cultural change will just well up and engulf us and then we'll have no 
ability, no voice whatsoever. Let me give you a couple of examples, just in case you're wondering. What kind of things are we fighting fires? You know, what kind of pressures are we facing? Uh, what kind of pressure points are the church facing? Um, these are just some of the ones that come straight to my mind. The issues of, of gender and sexuality, uh, homosexuality, lifestyle and behavior, that kind of stuff. It's something that's just talked about so much in our, in our world and something that's a real uh, issue that we have to uh, wrestle with and think through from a biblical perspective as a church. Transgenderism uh, is becoming normalized in our society. Huge pressure on us as a church to conform to this wider agenda. There are other issues as well, extremes of life, uh, how does the church respond to abortion and euthanasia? These are the big issues, the big ticket pressure points. There are many others as well, many other issues closer to home as a church that we may uh, feel the pressure of that sort of, you know, um, dominant culture on us. Church growth strategies from the business world, pastoral techniques from the showbiz world, worship practices from the entertainment world. All of these things cause pressure on the church even on a personal level as individuals, uh, people in the families and people who work. The culture is pressurizing us to look good, to feel good and have the goods. And I wonder how many Christians you know, maybe you're one yourself, who are driven by those kind of values rather than Christ himself. Driven by looking good, feeling good, having the goods. That's all they talk about. Yeah, they go to church. Yeah, they say religious stuff. But ultimately, that's what drives them. So what do we do? What do we do if we have detected some of the spirit, if you like, of Pergamum in our own church or in our own lives where we have made compromises to the pressure of the surrounding culture? What do we do? What do we do if some of us, even unwittingly, have held to the teaching of Balaam or the Nicolaitans? What if some of us have been enticed by the world in some way or other and, and, and we've started believing different things and we started wandering and maybe given ourselves to the practices of the world as opposed to the practices that Jesus gives to us in his word. What if we have wandered into sexual immorality and other practices? Even if those practices are about looking good and feeling good and having the goods, what should we do? What should we do as a new church that wants to prevent these kind of errors from occurring or even uh, equip ourselves so that when they do come up that we know what to do? What should we do? Well, let's turn back to God's word because thankfully Jesus not only labels the issues, he gives the, the grace to overcome. In verse 16, he's just laid out the problem. You have succumbed to the pressures of your society Verse 16, he says, Therefore, repent. That's it, actually. <laughs> Two words. Therefore, repent. Um, sorry if you're looking for a 10-point breakdown of the things we've got to do. Actually, it's just two words. Therefore, he says, based on all this stuff I've just told you, repent. Sometimes people, uh, friends, Christian friends, have said, Dave, you know, you go on too much about repentance. I, I hear you talk about that too much. And uh, yeah, 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 we, get, we kind of understand where you're coming from and that, but you, you bang on about that too much. But I would say to you tonight, and if you, if you think that, 
sorry. Um, but the reason why I say it is because it's, it's there in the, in the Bible. Uh, verse 16 just makes that pretty clear. In fact, out of the seven churches uh, in this little mini-series in Asia Minor, five out of the seven are told, repent. So it's not just me making this stuff up. That's Jesus talking to the churches, and that's not only in Revelation either. It's all over the place. Um, repent. Maybe you're a bit disappointed by that news. Maybe you've heard it all before. Let's look and think for a few moments. Even if you think you know what repenting is all about, let's just open that up a bit. Therefore, Jesus says, repent. Repent, if you know, means change your mind. More broadly, turn around. Stop going in that direction, says Jesus, and, and, and come back to me. As he said to the church in Ephesus, return to your first love. This imagery of, of, of the church wandering away from their spouse, you know, from their husband and, and being unfaithful. And, and Jesus, because he is the, the loving husband, all husbands are, are projected upon and should image in some way. Jesus, the perfect, wonderful, loving husband, says to his church, me and you and everybody included, come back to me. Come back. Return to your first love. Be faithful to me. Make a clean break with the past. Um, Noah, Noah was sharing this earlier on in our time of the sung worship and uh, repentance just sounds like a, like, a, like a bad word sometimes and you know we, we, we associate it with people stood on soapboxes yelling repent you know uh, hell is coming the end of the world all that sort of stuff but yet we, we miss the biblical understanding of repentance repentance is a gift Repentance is only possible because God is a God who loves and who gives grace. And repentance is, is a gift that he gives so that we can turn back to him. It is based on the finished work of Christ, on his death and his resurrection, freely given to you, covering your sins, securing you eternally by the Spirit, giving Christ's perfection to you indwelling you, giving you power to repent. And it's a gift. That It is why we can repent. Repenting is more than just deciding to live a good life and thinking, you know what, as of tomorrow, I'm going to live a good life. I'm going to, I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps. That's not what repentance is, according to the Bible. It's something you can only do truly and really and properly if God gives you the grace and the power to do it. Otherwise, what you're doing is not repenting. I just want to pull out two facets as we think more about this thing called repentance. The text gives us two facets or the basis of our repentance. Number one, our repentance, according to Jesus, is to be church-based. Church-based. Look down at verse 16. Notice who is being addressed. Therefore, he says, repent. Who's he talking to? Is he talking to those who have given in to temptation and sort of compromised with the world? No, not primarily. He is talking to the entire church. He says to them in verse 14 and verse 15, you have some people within you who have given into this teaching. So therefore, he says, repent the lot of you. See, the first facet to our repentance is that it is church-based it is church-wide 
And that, that comes as a massive shock to us, particularly those of us uh, in our 21st century uh, understanding, you know, our sort of individual attitude to religion. We think, I repent of my sins and I do this and I do that and the other. But actually, Jesus is saying here to the church, you'll repent. Whether this is your own personal sin or not, you all have a responsibility here. Only if some of you hold to the teaching, only if some of you dabble in the practices. So that begs the question, I think, why are the church called to repent for the sins of just a few within the church? Doesn't sound fair to me. Maybe he has to repent, or she does, but not me. I'm good. Why are they all called to repent? The answer is, that is the way the local church has been set up by Jesus. You know, when you look at some of the, the letters in the New Testament that, that, that are written by Paul and Peter and other ones to the churches, they're not written to the leaders of the churches, per se, or a little committee, or the, or the bishop, or the archbishop. They're included, but they're written to the church, to the church in Philippi, to the church in Galatia, to the church in Corinth. When another church and another part of the Bible turns away from the gospel, Paul doesn't say to the leaders, I am astonished about you guys. You have let this slip. No, he says to the church, I'm astonished that you have wandered away. It seems to be uh, in, in the understanding of the New Testament that the actions of a few within the church affect the entire church. It has a church-wide impact. Paul says uh, in another letter to another church, he says a little leaven, that is yeast, a little yeast, leavens the whole lump. And what he's saying is the effects of, of one or two or the sins of, of a small group has an effect on the entire loaf of bread. And so his advice is to cleanse out, to remove, to clean the bread. See, it's not enough for us as Christians within the church to look at other people in our fellowship or whatever and just say, you know what, it's their fault, they repent. According to Jesus here, it is the responsibility of the church to repent corporately. Not that I can repent for your personal sins and vice versa, you can't repent for mine. But we all have a role in one another's repentance, in one another's coming back to Christ, in, in, in our faithfulness to Jesus. We are all implicated. We all do this together. And uh, for those of you who are regulars here at Foundation, uh, you'll know um, that this understanding that we're in this together reflects the way that we structure ourselves as a church. We say a foundation church, we are Baptistic in polity. Sorry if that sounds boring, but that means that the church community as a whole is the highest source of authority in the church. Not the bishops, not the pastor, not the elders. It is the congregation as a whole that are the final and the highest human source of authority under Christ in his word. And that's reflected here in the teaching we see in, in Revelation 2. That's why as a church we are going to walk into membership this summer to know who uh, sort of belongs, if you like, and who doesn't belong, to be clear on what we believe and what we don't believe. That's why we're going through this process together so that we can take ownership to do the Christian life together, to help one another walk 
as believers in, in Jesus. That's why we do this. So number one, our repentance is to be church-based. And we see that in verse 16. Jesus addresses the entire church and says to them, repent. Secondly, our repentance is to be word-based. We've had church-based, word-based. It's all about coming back to God's word. I'm, I'm ever thankful, and I think that I'm only becoming more aware of this as I, as I go on as a, as, a, as a Christian, that God has not been silent, that he doesn't loiter around behind the clouds and just lets us scrabble along trying to please him somehow. God speaks so very clearly to us in his word. He doesn't leave a whole bunch of questions. Yes, the Bible doesn't speak to every single facet of human experience, but to those things that are necessary for us to know God truly, for us to know how to live to him, to his glory, that is all there. And there, there is no mystery about this. He is clear. That's why I said it's not, not only amazing that God exists, but it's amazing that he speaks He's not silent and he speaks to us through the person of his son and through the word, the inscripturated word uh, that we see we have here in the Bible. And that's why our repentance not only is church-based but it is word-based. It is coming back to what God has already said clearly time and again in his word. We don't have to make it up and, and devise ways to please him. It's all here. He's just calling us to be faithful. That's why here at Foundation, again, the basis of our decisions, the ground of our leadership, the content of our vision, the foundation of our wisdom and our practice doesn't come from what works, doesn't come from pragmatism or what the world says, it comes from what God says in the Bible. And we make no apologies about that. Our repentance is to be back to God's word, it's word-based. Um, by the way, uh, you may or may not think this, but I, I am not, I am not, just to be clear, the fount of all knowledge. I don't know everything. I'm just a guy who goes to the Bible and opens it up and tries to understand it well. But uh, God, through his word, gives us uh, so much wisdom that we can use as a church and as people about how to live for him, how to please him. Um, there are many, many great resources out there. You may be aware of many of them already books and uh, websites and teachings on all variety of issues, whether it's ethics or how to live or you know, how to lead and all that sort of stuff. So I, I, I'm not the fountain of all knowledge, but I, I'm a signpost, I think, so I can point you in the right direction. If you have questions uh, about how to live for God or what does it mean to be a Christian or uh, how, how can I get wisdom for this area of my life, then I would be delighted to, to talk and, and help you and, and, and uh, maybe signpost you to other things that can really help you uh, with a particular question or an issue or just general desire to understand. Our repentance is word-based. We are always, as they said in the old days, reforming under the word of God. We're always coming back to the scriptures. We're always asking, what does it say? How do we live in response to it? Whether our ethics, whether our practices as a church, our priorities as individuals, always coming back to God's word, always doing that in community with each other. Repentance is church-based and it's word-based. Let's, let's just tie things up here as we come coming into a land. Thank God um, that Jesus 
not only labels the issue and he shows us the way out, but he attaches a promise to every single person who hears the word, who are tr troubled by it, who want to change as a result of it. There is a promise attached to everyone who overcomes, who conquers. And that promise is given to us in verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know, the Spirit is speaking. It is the same Spirit that hovered over the waters at the beginning of time, before creation, or before the world as we know it was, was brought into being. It is the same Spirit that anointed prophets of old to speak from God. It's the same Spirit that enabled Jesus to carry out his earthly ministry as a human being, just like me and you. It's that same Spirit that's given to the church, poured out. And it's the same Spirit who speaks through this word. And he may, I pray, be speaking to you right now, as you hear. Not just hear the external word, but hear and know him, speaking deeply to you. If you have an ear and you hear the Spirit speaking to you, if you feel an area of your life is being addressed where perhaps you have compromised with the prevailing values of the world, some way or other, only you know. Maybe he's speaking to you just now. The good news is, not only is the power to repent given to you in abundance, but the promise of grace is attached also to those who receive the word and change. The promise is this. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. It's kind of a weird promise, actually, isn't it, when you think about it? It's not particularly obvious. Last week we saw the promise was... For those who overcome, they'll not be hurt by the second death. I'm not going to go to hell, basically. That's a great promise. That's a, that's a brilliant promise. But this one here, hidden manna, white stones, is a bit obscure to say the best. But let me try and unpack it a little bit as we sort of come to a, a conclusion here. Hidden manna, well, manna, manna refers to that stuff that came down from heaven when the, the Israelites were wandering through the promised land. It was the bread of heaven, manna, sustaining them. And yet the fact that it's hidden here suggests that it's stored away right now. This other manna, this other bread from heaven is stored away from the church, will one day be given to them. This heavenly food reserved for the faithful. It is there, but it's hidden. This, this idea is made more likely by the fact that those who overcome are given a white stone, which in ancient times, in antiquity, a white stone was used and required as a party invite to get into the party. You were given a white stone, especially made so that you would be granted entrance to the great banquets. Admission to the grand banquet, only possible with the white stone. The faithful would be admitted, therefore, to this great heavenly banquet, this feast of the heavenly food with God himself. And that white stone, that admission ticket, if you like, to that great heavenly feast 
includes on it a new name, a new name which is associated with a wholly new identity to the one that you may have right now if you are faithful to Jesus. This evokes this powerful symbolism uh, of the Old Testament, of the messianic kingdom of God, the kingdom of the Spirit coming down. Everybody is given a new name who gets access to that kingdom. And we see that is only provided through the blood of Jesus Christ. So taken together, what does this promise mean? It means, I think, that those who conquer, who are faithful to the name of Jesus, who, who come back to him, who receive divine grace, to them, entrance is open to this great feast, this great marriage supper of the Lamb, as Revelation goes on to describe, this time of feasting and jubilation uh, between Christ and his victorious people, the church. In one sense, this feast is like the end of an era. In another sense, it is just marking the beginning of a new era of perfection in the kingdom of God. To the one who overcomes, you are granted access to this heavenly feast and all that it symbolizes. That's the destination of those who hold fast, who refuse to give in, who stay strong, stand strong, living for Christ, despite the pressures of the world upon them. And that same promise is available to us today as we listen to the Spirit. Grace upon grace upon grace is shown to people like you and me who listen, who receive the Spirit by the grace of God, come back to Jesus and are restored to enter into the heavenly realms one day. Let's pray.